1: gloves are good. Obey my commands at all times. Touch gloves.
2: In Asia right now, there is a fight going on. Not one between people wearing big padded gloves and shiny shorts, but a fight between cities.
3: In the red corner is the Chinese island territory of Hong Kong. In the blue corner is its mainland rival, Shanghai. And in the green corner...
2: Hang on, hang on. Does boxing have a third green corner?
3: Yeah, maybe not. But uh, if we just go for it for now, yeah? Yeah? Sure. In in the green corner, we have the city-state of Singapore.
2: These three Asian financial hubs are all battling for the title of Asia's financial centre.
3: The heavyweight champion of global business and finance. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Mike Bird.
2: And I'm Samea Keynes. And in today's show, we are staging a financial centre prize fight.
3: That's right. Think Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Mike Tyson, but with substantially more money at stake.
2: We'll start with Shanghai, the former contender looking to make a comeback.
4: In many ways, moving from Hong Kong to Shanghai for a multinational does kind of make sense. You're closer to your customers, you're closer to all of your staff that are working across the country.
3: And then we'll look at the upstart, Singapore. Singapore
1: is picking up, in particular, business from Western expats who either don't want to live in Hong Kong anymore because it's becoming less liberal and less democratic, or whose companies don't want to be in Hong Kong anymore because of the spectre of China.
2: And finally, we will ask if the reigning heavyweight champion, Hong Kong, really can
5: stay at the top of the rankings. I think it's important to remember that last year, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange posted a record annual profit for the fourth year in a row, boosted by a number of Chinese IPOs. It's not just the bragging rights at stake.
3: This is about the future of where Asia's financial gravity sits. Hey Mike. Hey Samira.
2: Now, today's episode is building on an upcoming piece you have in the paper looking at Asian financial centers. Before we get into our contest, what got you interested in this subject?
3: So this is obviously sort of my beat in general, but it really started out as something quite personal for me because I moved from Hong Kong to Singapore earlier this year. And when I rocked up at my temporary accommodation at the time, the manager greeted me by saying another one. Pretty much the entire building seemed to be full of people who had recently migrated from Hong Kong. How welcoming. Yeah, they, they were really making me feel special. But it got me thinking, if I was one of a sort of flood of people relocating, what did that actually mean for Hong Kong's dominance as the region's financial centre? And if it was actually losing its sheen, was Singapore now the place to be? And what would that mean for the future of finance and business in the region in general?
0: Okay,
2: so partly you're literally paid to write about Asian financial centres, Partly, Mike, you were caught up in this big tussle between them. <laughs> now, before we look more closely at the main contenders, I think we should probably lay out the rules for our fight, which means defining what exactly makes a good financial centre.
3: You're right. It takes more than being just a fun city or even just a prosperous city.
2: Now, to get the parameters, I rang up Professor Michael Minelli. He's the co-founder of the think tank Z Yen, and he created a Global Financial Centres Index. First off, what makes a Global Financial Centre?
6: Well, a Global Financial Centre is a a nexus, uh, typically uh, based around trade. A lot of people think it's purely finance, but in fact, it typically supports a a large trade region. And therefore, we see financial centers historically beginning around ports or in some cases like Timbuktu, major centers of trade. The second thing that uh, is almost every city is a financial center in some way. So the distinction that one might have as global is that it is noticeably there for people who are outside of that area or that nation. Uh, And I would like to argue in some ways that a truly global financial center is kind of local everywhere. So if you look at London or Hong Kong or New York or Singapore, uh, traditionally people would throw these phrases around as if they were part of their local system in a way that, say, somebody in Munich might not throw around Chicago.
2: Okay, so you've tried to formalise this, though, haven't you, in in the the Global Financial Centres Index. Can you talk a bit about how you create that ranking? How, How do you decide what matters
6: Well, we began the Global Financial Centers Index back in 2005. It was first published in 2007. We began categorizing instrumental factors, as we call them. These are input pieces of data. And we rate about 135 pieces of data uh, that go in it. And then we combine that with surveys of people working in financial services globally. So we look at uh, principally five general areas is is what, what the taxonomy covers. We have the business environment, the general business environment. Uh, we have the financial sector developments. So these are statistics about uh, trading and shares, about insurance, about assets under management. We look at the human capital, the quality of uh, universities, secondary schools, general education, the infrastructure ranging from uh, just roads, rail times, travel times, commute, all the way on up to the internet and the high-speed access. And then there's sort of just the uh, general reputation of the center all five of these may sound a bit funny, but if you looked at sort of the business environment, uh, do you want to have a financial center in an area that's got bad regulation? Certainly not. People tend to cluster together, so financial services attracts financial services. Infrastructure, there's no point in setting up a financial center if you don't have an internet connection. And when you get into kind of the general uh, reputation and environment, that ranges a wee bit. You know, Would you rather go to a center where you're bored in the evenings or would you rather go to a center where there are things to do? But also it covers things like uh, murder rates. Um, Would you bring your money to a financial center that has a high murder rate? And I frequently have these arguments with financial centers that go, oh, you know, we, we're a great center. We've got a big, gleaming stock exchange. We've got broadband. Uh, you know, everything's great. It's just, you know, you only get killed when you come here. So there's a wide range of things that feature in all five of those areas.
2: Right. OK, yes, I agree. Uh, death is not generally an asset for a financial hub, I would have thought. You mentioned that that cities were, were talking to you and maybe debating about, about their position uh, in the index. How common is it for financial centres to move up and down the rankings? Or is it the case that actually their positions are fairly entrenched?
6: Financial centres do move up and down the rankings constantly. It's a thousand point scale. So I've always said, though, relax. Any movement of 20 or 25 points is not to be fretted over. If it repeats itself, then you better start moving into action. Uh, over the longer term, though, it is more interesting. Probably the most exciting thing was that uh, the index began to predict as uh, as early as 2007 or eight the immense rise of Asian centers. And uh, I was subject uh, in the late 2000s uh, to quite a bit of derision in the West uh, when people said to me, you know, who did I rate? And I said, well, actually, I think uh, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, uh, Shanghai are, are going to continue rising. And people said, oh, that, that, that has topped out.
2: Okay, you, you just mentioned Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Singapore. So let's now focus on Asia specifically. So what would you say the ranking of those three were, and has that been the same forever?
6: Um, at the moment, Hong Kong is uh, number three in the index. So just after London, Shanghai is number four, and Singapore is number six. So they're all very, very tight.
2: Okay, so we will hear from Professor Monelli again. But now we know the parameters. Hong Kong, Singapore and Shanghai are all currently neck and neck.
3: Right. So at this point, I think we've really hyped up our showdown.
2: Yeah. And much like a good fight, we are going to first go to the ad break before we get to the main event. This is where we tell you why you really should subscribe to The Economist.
3: One particular reason, the amazing takedown of a different sort that our work and life Bartleby columnist Andrew Palmer wrote about taking your full, whole, real self to work.
2: You can also, in this week's edition, read a really great take by my colleague Christian Odendahl on the energy price shock facing Europe Now, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the economic risks looming for America and China. This piece looks at the energy price shock hitting Europe. It's a really, really good kind of third problem that is very important right now.
3: Yeah, just in case you wondered whether we were focused on the US and China because things are looking much better in Europe, it's a relief to know that that is definitely not true. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer.
2: And if you're already a subscriber, you can sign up to our weekly Money Talks newsletter at economist.com slash newsletters.
3: Both of those links are in the notes to this episode.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
3: So, Sumeya, are you ready? I am. Let's
2: get ready to rumble!
3: Wait, 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 am I? Just go with it, just go with it. Let's start with Shanghai.
4: There are lots of people on the street. Everybody is in great spirits because they've just been released from their apartments for the first time in in several months. I mean, there's kind of a buzz outside.
3: Don Wineland is our China business and finance editor. Like millions of other people, he spent most of his spring locked down in Shanghai.
4: So even little things that you may take for granted are uh, quite something here. I went for a bike ride in the mid-afternoon. I purchased something on the street, which I haven't done in two months. I bought some apples and bananas.
3: Yeah, you clearly had a pretty rough go of it.
4: Yeah, I mean, if you're thinking about this from the business community's perspective, it's probably one of the most notable things that have happened here in the past many, many years, the past couple of decades, most likely.
3: But even this year, with all the lockdowns, we've seen things like Goldman Sachs moving relatively senior people from Singapore to Shanghai. And it feels like from the international business perspective uh, that people still see Shanghai very much as the expanding center of Chinese finance. It's something that's going to be more important in 10 years from now in a way that Hong Kong probably isn't or people don't see it that way even with the proviso that Hong Kong does have a role that Shanghai will really struggle to take away as a sort of growth area. And would it be right to say that Shanghai is typically seen as more of an opportunity for expansion than
4: Hong Kong is? Absolutely. So I think there's a lot of things going on here. And senior bankers have been moving from elsewhere in Asia to Shanghai for a long time. But yeah, you still have an inflow, even during you know, these very difficult times Part of this is the promise of the domestic market. Banks like Goldman and a lot of other financial institutions have recently set up domestic wealth management companies that are really catering to the local market. And one thing that's interesting about these types of businesses is that there's less a cross-border element to them. They want to get Chinese clients and invest in mainland securities they're not really advertising so much the cross-border type of wealth management that you might find in Hong Kong and Singapore. Another thing that's going on, of course, is that these banks have been setting up here for 20 years. It's hard to imagine a bank like Goldman Sachs coming out and saying, oh, you know what, we're not going to do the Chinese market anymore, or we don't like what's going on there. It just it pushes back against this promise they've been making for more than a decade.
3: I, I'm wondering as well, the Shanghai government, tends to have had sort of historically a pretty good reputation among the, the business community relative to other municipal and regional governments in China. You know, the, the Shanghai government, correct me if I'm wrong, also offers sort of sweeteners. It would like more international business to be setting up in the city. Is that still a sort of reputation of the the local government in Shanghai?
4: Yes, the government has been very, very pro multinational business. They do want companies to set up here. The policy has always been accommodative. They're always setting up new free trade zones and special economic zones and stuff like that within Shanghai to to attract business. They're doing a tax pilot that will lower tax pretty close to the corporate tax rate in Hong Kong. So a lot of people have seen this as a direct threat to some of the tax benefits of setting up in Hong Kong. So there's that. And I think that the Shanghai government, it it knows that it's competing directly with Hong Kong for some of these businesses. If you look at the track record in terms of where companies are moving, there have been big multinationals that have been setting up their Asia headquarters in Shanghai as well. So, so far... Even with the zero COVID problem that they've had here, I think the reputation is is
3: quite good. So what do you think when you look at the longer term trends in terms of Shanghai's potential as a financial center? Have the lockdowns done some sort of damage to that?
4: Yeah, I think it's really important to divide the lockdowns from kind of the longer term outlook on what's going on in, in Shanghai. Of course, the two do overlap, but Shanghai has, has been on a multi-decade journey toward becoming one of Asia's top financial and business hubs. I mean, that's its stated aim. I would say if you're looking at it from kind of a 15-year perspective, as long as I've been coming in and out of this city, it's regularly failed to hit some of its goals. And it is held back by some of the same problems that it's always suffered from. So these are things like distrust in the legal system here, the inability to freely convert the UN, the local currency. And then there's other concerns or things that aren't conducive to bringing in more business. I mean, the stock exchange, it's very easy for foreign investors to access it now, but on many levels, it's not up to global standards. So yeah, I mean, the city has always been trying to turn itself into a global financial center And its importance has skyrocketed, but that is mainly due to the importance of Chinese business. This is one of the main finance centers for Asia, but it's really inward looking and and serving a lot of the Chinese companies and Chinese banks that are set up here.
3: Okay, so Don, thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy a few more free bike rides. Thanks
4: a lot.
2: Okay, so round one is over. And, and that is a mixed bag for Shanghai. It's easier to access Chinese companies, which are obviously a huge global growth area, but it's not exactly open to business beyond the region.
3: Yeah, that seems about right. In my piece, I argue that there are basically three important criteria that you can use to evaluate a city as a financial centre. So you can use a city as a base for conducting regional or global business, which, as Don mentioned, Shanghai has certainly done but also its position as a center for wealth made elsewhere to be managed and invested and the size of its capital market and all the banking activities associated with it. And and Shanghai is certainly less strong on those elements. And I think, as you say, the main thing that it's clear Shanghai won't do unless there's a really enormous change is that it can't really operate as a center for Asian financial activity, specifically from outside of China.
2: Okay, should we move on to our next contender now?
3: Yes, let's move on.
2: Round two, your current home, Singapore.
3: Yeah, so I thought I would probably be tipping things a bit too much in Singapore's favour if I tried to argue for its dominance.
2: Right, our made-up contest must be absolutely fair.
3: So I called up a better
1: representative. My name is James Crabtree. I'm the executive director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies here in Singapore, um, and I'm a recovering
3: journalist. So James, let's start with a little bit about Singapore's sort of history uh, and what currently makes Singapore well-placed to play this role as this sort of central hub in Asia. What is it that's made Singapore such a useful place for that sort of activity?
1: Singapore is very well governed, um, has reliable regulation, it's very friendly to international capital. And so if you're speaking from Singapore, you think, well, that is the the whole story of why Singapore has been a successful financial hub. Uh, It's been very welcoming to talent and to money. Uh, I think another part of the story uh, is Singapore has very good regulation, but it's also notably better than the region in which it sits, so Southeast Asia. And so a part of Singapore's success has been that it has attracted a lot of wealth from its surrounding areas. So if you're a businessman in Indonesia or an entrepreneur in Malaysia, you might think, well, I'll put my money in Singapore because it's got a better legal
3: system, better financial markets. And this is quite a sort of contrast now. Obviously, you've had this this very long-term competition between Singapore and Hong Kong, both of them very friendly on the tax front, uh, both of them relatively limited regulation for uh, international businesses. Now, Hong Kong, in terms of its governance, uh, has has certainly taken a a sort of reputational hit. How has that changed the sort of relationship between the two cities and the way that people look at Singapore in contrast?
1: So I suppose Singapore is picking up in particular business from... Western expats who either don't want to live in Hong Kong anymore because it's becoming less liberal and less democratic or whose companies don't want to be in Hong Kong anymore because of the specter of China. Now, there are plenty of companies that still do want to be in Hong Kong precisely for the same reason because it's the the gateway to to China's market and that isn't gonna change very much. But if you're a big multinational company, the odds of you shutting down your Hong Kong operation are pretty slim because, you know, kiss goodbye to your Chinese market and welcome lots of headlines. But if you decide that you're simply not going to hire anyone more in Hong Kong and you're going to, at the margin, increase your headcount in Singapore, then, you know, no one can criticize you for that. So uh, I think that's that's what a lot of people have been doing. I mean, one thing that you have seen that's interesting here is Singapore has become quite a, a focus for Chinese tech companies. So, TikTok is globally headquartered here. One of the cloud arms of the big Chinese tech companies are headquartered here. So you do see some Chinese companies moving to Singapore. that's interesting because in a sense, when a Chinese company thinks we are going to go global, we want to have a kind of global
3: footprint, then Southeast Asia is the area that they tend to move to first. So if I was to speak to a sort of Hong Kong maximalist, a fundamentalist for Hong Kong on this, um, I've spoken to many in the past. And the, the argument they always make is that Singapore simply can't replace Hong Kong in terms of the role that Hong Kong plays for Chinese business in particular. It may well be that Singapore does much better and has entrenched its place permanently in, in Southeast Asia and even some other parts of Asian business, but as a center for Chinese wealth, for Chinese banking activity, for the relationship of the Chinese financial sector with the rest of the world that Hong Kong is unparalleled. What do you make of that argument? And do you think that Singapore has a sort of competitive position when it comes to attracting Chinese business to the city as well? I mean, I think that argument is exactly correct.
1: And I don't think predictions of Hong Kong's demise as a financial sector are actually very likely. Hong Kong isn't going to collapse. Um, You're not going to see an exodus. But much as with the City of London after Brexit, you know, you might over time see uh, a, a kind of gradual decline of the sort that is similar to the, you know, the gradual rise of these financial centres over many decades. Singapore as a rival, if you look at the rankings of global financial centres, then Singapore comes sort of somewhere down the top 10 in sort of sixth or seventh place, depending on which ranking you look at, whereas Hong Kong is one of the top three alongside London and New York. So Singapore has always been in a sense, a regional center in Southeast Asia with some capabilities which put it in the global top tier. And I think the question is, how will Singapore uh, develop the areas that it's already very good at and how will it address its weaknesses? To pick one that it's very good at, then wealth management and family offices is a great strength of Singapore. And that's an area where you've seen a huge flow, both from China and from the West. The number of family offices in Singapore according to one survey, doubled over the three-year period to 2019. On the other hand, Singapore has a lot of well-established weaknesses. Its capital markets aren't very deep. It has a miserably small IPO market. I mean, a fraction of Hong Kong is, I think, a tenth normally on any given year. So you know, I think Singapore has many strengths as a center of financial and professional services. It provides a lot of services that the countries around
3: it need. James, thank you very much for making the time to speak with us. Thank you. Great to be here.
2: Round two done. At this point, I'm not sure there has been a knockout blow.
3: Yeah, I mean, Shanghai definitely wins in terms of location relative to the big regional businesses. And as James mentioned, I think Singapore is certainly growing fastest in the second criteria when you think about things like wealth management.
2: Right. So should we go for our third and final round?
3: I am ready.
2: To make the case for and against Hong Kong, we decided to chat to Su Lin Wong, our China correspondent. Su Lin, hi. Hello. Now, you're in London with me, which is very far from your former base in Hong Kong. Can you tell us a bit about why that is?
5: Yeah, that's right. So in November of last year, the Hong Kong government declined to renew my work visa in Hong Kong. And so I am sort of currently in between various cities.
2: Okay, so is it very cruel to make you argue in favour of of Hong Kong as a financial (laughs) hub?
5: No, I mean, I try to remain clear eyed about the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, regardless of what the party has done to me and my friends,
2: Okay, great. Well, um, let's first talk about what Hong Kong had going for it. Why does it tend to top the list of financial centres in Asia?
5: Hong Kong used to have a lot of different things going for it. I think, first and foremost, it was just incredibly easy for people from all over the world to be based in Hong Kong uh, for a couple of reasons. You could have a very, very comfortable life not speaking the local language Cantonese. You could function in English. Hong Kong is geographically very well placed if you, you know, want to get to North Asia or Southeast Asia or obviously mainland China. uh, Tax is relatively low. It was just like easy to get things done. Paperwork is pretty minimal. Prior to a couple of years ago, you didn't really have to worry about China risks. So if you were a company in Hong Kong, you didn't have to worry about your employees, you know, being locked up or the Chinese Communist Party coming after you. There was robust rule of law, free speech, a free press. Things were just very easy and comfortable if you were a Western business.
2: Right. So so we're talking in a past tense here. You, you mentioned that things might have changed a couple of years ago. Can you talk a bit about the elephant in the room here or, or what the real threat to Hong Kong's top spot is?
5: I think in order to answer that question, we have to back up and look at what has happened to Hong Kong over the past few years. In 2019, there were massive pro-democracy protests in the city. Uh, It was like the largest uprising on Chinese soil since the Tiananmen protests in Beijing in 1989. And following that, the Chinese Communist Party imposed a draconian security law on the city. And they've arrested more than 150 people. They've basically locked up uh, the whole of the Hong Kong opposition. Uh, they've crushed, I think, over 60 civil society organisations. And so what we've really seen is, is the death of liberalism in the city. And business has also really been affected by that. Everyone now has to effectively pledge loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party, whether you are Cafe Pacific or... You know, a, a Chinese business in Hong Kong. But actually, I think another really important change in Hong Kong over the past few years has been how the government has handled COVID.
2: What do you mean there exactly? What have we been seeing?
5: What we've seen is more and more of a convergence between how the Hong Kong government has handled COVID and how the mainland Chinese government has handled COVID. So basically, the Hong Kong government has adopted a zero COVID policy. It has put in very strict lockdown measures. If if you're a business trying to operate in Hong Kong, it's really difficult because every time your employees fly back into Hong Kong, they now have to quarantine. These kinds of COVID policies are fundamentally political. So, The same political dynamic is driving how the Hong Kong government has responded to COVID and also how it's responded to the pro-democracy movement. But I do think it's important to emphasise here that it's COVID that has really changed the calculus for a lot of businesses.
2: Okay, so that all sounds pretty negative. And I guess building on that, can you outline the main case against... Hong Kong remaining Asia's foremost financial centre?
5: It's very possible Hong Kong will become more and more like, say, Tokyo, which is still obviously like a huge financial hub, but it is in a way more parochial. You have to speak Japanese and it's mostly, you know, Japanese companies or businesses that have a Japan focus who will will have a large presence in Tokyo. And I think it's possible that increasingly what you'll see in Hong Kong is that Unless you have huge interests in the China market or you are a Chinese business or you are a service provider of Chinese firms, whether you're an accountant or a lawyer with the majority of your clients in China, it's possible that unless you fall into one of those categories, the opportunities for growth in Hong Kong will diminish over time.
2: What are the arguments for Hong Kong remaining Asia's foremost financial centre?
5: I think Hong Kong is going to flourish as a large Chinese city oriented towards China, which maybe means that it's not so much a global financial hub. I guess it depends how you define that. I don't think Hong Kong will be Asia's world city, which was an incredibly effective tagline that I think the Hong Kong government came up with. But that isn't to say Hong Kong is going to disappear into oblivion. Um, I don't think Western money is going to stop flowing into China, and it isn't as if business is going to dry up completely in Hong Kong. It's just that the trajectory of Hong Kong is going to be different from what it used to be. And I think it's important to remember that last year, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange posted a record annual profit for the fourth year in a row, boosted by a number of Chinese IPOs. And increasingly my contacts in Hong Kong tell me that Hong Kong is effectively China's ATM machine. I guess this is a question of how you define what a global financial centre is. And I think if our understanding is that it's a city where there's a lot of English and it's a hub for Western businesses to do business with China and sort of engage with the rest of the world, then maybe that's not exactly what we're going to see in Hong Kong's future. But I think if we redefine a global financial hub as a place that's predominantly going to be operating in Chinese, where most of the people who work in the hub will speak Mandarin, Cantonese, English, and will be servicing Chinese businesses, then I do think Hong Kong has a very bright future. Su Lin, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Samaya.
2: That is round three over. Mike, what is your take? Who dealt the knockout blow, in your opinion?
3: So I think to start with, the boring answer is that Asia is a huge and economically diverse region and that there's more than enough room for multiple financial hubs and that each of the places that we've discussed has enough drawbacks, whether it's in the capital controls that you have in Shanghai or the national security law in Hong Kong or the limited size of Singapore's equity market. I do think that it's quite clear right now which city has the most to lose and which one is sort of managing to lure business away from the others. Even if that's at the margin, I think Singapore is clearly having a sort of moment in the sun right now.
2: Okay, so what's happened here is before we wouldn't let you defend Singapore because we had a very fair contest. Um, And what you've done is you've snuck in at the end and defended your new home anyway.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's about right. And I think When I think about the reasons that I moved to Singapore in the first place, they sort of line up pretty well with the subject matter here. As someone who writes about Asian finance and business, you want to be where the action is in terms of Asian finance and business. And right now, that seems like it's Singapore more than it has been in the past.
2: Right. So your location is the the weather vane for the region. Absolutely. Great. I think now we should return to Professor Manelli. something he said at the end of our conversation I asked him about the chances that any one of these Asian financial hubs could potentially unseat New York or, or London as the global number one. Could Hong Kong, Singapore or Shanghai become the, the heavyweight champion of the world? And what would it take for an Asian financial centre to take the top spot globally? Is that is that even possible?
6: I think it's very possible um, and, in fact, might well happen. I I would predict it's not not at all unlikely. There are a few reasons for that. Uh, One is that the other competing clusters are quite fragmented. The second thing I would point to is that they are already uh, so close. It wouldn't take much statistically to pop, particularly Singapore, I think, higher on a a reliable basis. But for me, the the biggest thing is that uh, when you're looking at being in the Top, the absolute top. You have to perform well at everything. I think I would probably put a bit more money, uh, frankly, on Singapore. It doesn't advantage the home team unfairly over those from the outside. And to me, that is probably the, the core element. The final thing I'd say about uh, Singapore and London, for that matter, and I'm here in London and need to sell it as an alderman of the city, is that when you look at, uh, going back to your original question about a global financial centre, It's also a place where people would go to do business who have no domestic component. And that is, perhaps uh, to your opening question, a particularly good sign that you have a true global financial centre.
2: Michael, thank you so much.
6: Usumaya, thank you. It's been a real delight to be here.
3: Well, I'm already exhausted.
2: I think we should have commissioned a special belt, maybe, like in an actual boxing match.
3: Next time, next time. We'll check in with a budget and uh and we'll see. We'll get a belt for the next time. Great. Shall we get to our stats of the week?
2: Yes, we should. Now, I'm very excited about mine. It was inspired by an email from a longtime Money Talks listener, Thomas Hamfelt, who sent a number describing the reduction in export capacity from Ukraine. Now, I hunted around and got a slightly more up-to-date figure, and that is 22%. That's April's exports of grain as a share of its pre-war exports of grain. Per month, right? So it's only able to export right now around a fifth of what it was exporting pre-war. That is a huge cut in capacity and is contributing to, to globally rising grain prices right now.
3: So that's a, a great, slightly harrowing stat. I am going to call you out a little bit for cheating on the stats because you're getting them from listeners. And I think the important thing here to say to listeners is that we do want you to send in your stats, but we want you to send them specifically mentioning me that I should read them out. Then I'll get I'll get to do them, basically. We're going to skip Alice's statistic because she's uh, on honeymoon, according to her. She could be anywhere, really. and And some people would say... It displays a sort of lack of dedication to the podcast. I wouldn't personally say anything like that, but that's what some people might think.
2: Now, to be clear, though, some people do not include me. I'm going to be the the nice one in the podcast and send some official congratulations to Alice. Listeners will be pleased to hear that she was so on brand that at her wedding, there were enough economist employees to conduct an editorial meeting. But now, Mike, let's get your stat. What have you got?
3: Okay, so my statistic is 139,500, and that is the number of people who visited Japan as tourists in April. People in Asia will be aware that Japan is very steadily now starting to open up to tourist groups very, very slowly. That number was down 95% on the same month in 2019, but I think it says something about how desperate people are to get back to Japan that even with the restrictions in place, even with the quarantine required, you still have more than 100,000 people visiting anyway.
2: I'd be quiet for visiting Japan.
3: With quarantine? All right, maybe not. There you go. Our thanks go to James Crabtree and Professor Michael Maynelli.
2: And thank you for listening to Money Talks. If you like us, you can rate us on Apple or wherever you listen to us.
3: And if you have any feedback or a particularly good statistic for me to read out at the end of the show, you can write to us at podcasts at
2: This week's episode was produced by Marie Keyworth and Stevie
3: Hertz. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast.
2: Our editor is Kim Gittelson.
3: I'm Mike Bird in Singapore for now.
2: And I'm Samaya Keynes in London.
3: And this is The Economist.